This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I feel pretty confident everyone here knows what a spoiler is, like a spoiler alert. It's finding out something too early, and it sort of wrecks everything. You're going to a movie you've been looking forward to, and you didn't get to the first, you didn't come to the first showing, your friend has got to talk to you, and they tell you something, it just wrecks it. You know, so we have the idea that there are things we find, you know, that it's going to wreck everything as a spoiler. And it's true that knowing the future can really spoil things, but that might be true of books and movies and TV shows and things, but that's not necessarily true of life. Think about it. If we knew what we knew today, if we knew now, think of how our choices might have been different in some things. Right? We might have figured how little or how much I went to school, what job I took, uh, whether I buy that house knowing I'd have to sell it a year later. You know, a lot of things would change if we knew the future, for the better, if we'd have the advantage of that vision, wouldn't they? And also, how many times do we end up worrying about what turns out, thank God, to be nothing, but it didn't seem that way at the time. You're waiting for a medical result, or you're wondering, am I going to get this job? You know, you're going through this, you know, how are we going to pay the bills? And you really go through agony at the end, it all works out. And you say, boy, if I'd just known this, I could have really spared myself a lot of hassle. Well, this idea that knowing the future can be a power to us, the Bible has a term for it. The term for it is hope. It's the virtue of hope, that knowing what's to come changes the context of everything. It makes us, allows us to make the right choices. It allows us to get through the hardest times. We know how this will end. Hope is a key theme of today's gospel, the gospel of the transfiguration. So let's talk about some of the questions we'll try to address today. This is a gospel of hope. What, what exactly happened at the transfiguration? On one level, it's really easy, but on another level, it isn't. You know, what actually happened there? What did the apostles see? The second thing is, gee, doesn't it remind you of something? You say, wait a second. It, you know, we, this is the end of the last Sunday of Epiphany. At the very beginning, remember Jesus' baptism? There's something here that reminds me of Jesus' baptism as we close this time. What is there? What is that? That can't be by accident. What's the connection between those two? Okay. What about we talk about we have Moses and Elijah, and that's great, but you know, uh, Mount Tabor in the Holy Land has plenty of service on the top of it. It's not a little pike, it's plenty of service. We could add a lot of old, other Old Testament figures there. Why those two? I mean, think about think of Father Abraham, right? Or think about David or the prophet Isaiah. There are a lot of other people we could have fit on that mountain. Why only those two? Okay. The same thing, true, there are 12 apostles, but how come we only have three of them up there? Peter, James, and John. What about the other nine? I can only imagine how they felt when they found out they missed it. Okay, but in any event, uh, you know, why only three and not, not all 12? Why do we always read this? As Father Brett told us, we always read this the Sunday before we begin Lent. There's a reason in the church's wisdom why we do that. It's really meant to help prepare us for Lent. So a good question is, okay, what is the message as we're about to go into Lent this Ash Wednesday? And finally, this is all about hope. You know, how do we nourish hope? You see, all of us receive hope in our baptism. It's a divine gift, faith, hope, and love. We call them theological virtues, the creation of God. But, you know, it's a seed. If it's not nourished, it remains a seed. And how do we nourish hope in our life?
especially we can look upon how could we be better at this as we go into land. So let's start, first of all, what exactly happened at the Transfiguration? Let's start there. What happened at the Transfiguration? Well, one thing when you study the Gospels you realize is in the, it's a, a genre, you know, it's a special way of writing things. There are no casual things in the Gospels. They're very carefully crafted. We, it's, it, Charles Dickens would never have been an evangelist, a Gospel writer. Remember, he wants to describe everything. We don't just have the sun rose. We have all the colors. We have, that's at least good for a page. Remember, this man was paid by the word. Okay, so we always, we always have this out. In the Gospel, when they give us a detail, there's something they're trying to tell us about understanding what's about to happen. So before this comes, this is connected with something that immediately happened before. What does it say? It says in Matthew's Gospel, now after six days. In Mark's Gospel, it says after six days. In John, uh, Luke's Gospel, it says after about eight days, which is the way of saying about a week, about a week later. Okay. So what is this connecting to? It's saying this transfiguration you're about to see connects directly to something that just happened. Don't miss the connection. So what's the connection? Actually, what would potentially might have been one of the most troubling verses in all the Scripture, in all the Gospels. Here's Matthew's version. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Mark says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come to them with power. Luke says, but I tell you, truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So this is telling us, this is the answer to what Jesus, what do they mean that there are people standing here who would see something in their lifetime? These three are the ones. So what do they see? They see Christ in his kingly glory. They see the real thing. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. You know, what about um, the resurrected Jesus? Right, that's it. You know, they, they all saw the resurrected Jesus. Well, what about the resurrected Jesus? But I want you to think about something. When Mary Magdalene actually runs into our Lord on the, day, on the morning of the resurrection, okay, is she overpowered by the light coming out? She thought he was the gardener. Remember, she oh, he must be the gardener. Hey, do you have any idea where they took the body? That's not this kind of experience, is it? When the two disciples, the very night of the resurrection, remember they're walking to, uh, they're walking to Emmaus, and do they say, wow, look at that light, let's ask him. No, it was basically, he's walking around the road, and they say, hey, you hear what's going on in Jerusalem? Let's talk about it. And so they don't, they have to all go all the way through dinner until they finally recognize him. His own apostles later, after the resurrection, they're on the Sea of Galilee, and there's somebody sitting there with a, with a fire on the shore, and finally John says, that's the Lord. So it wasn't like everything, oh, really? No, it's, no, that's the Lord. So this is different than seeing the risen Jesus, because why in the Gospel accounts that Jesus appeared this way to make it clear this wasn't just a vision, it really was Jesus risen from the dead. This wasn't the spirit, you know, some spiritual vision. So we emphasize his corporality, right? He's a, he's a real physical person. But here we see beyond that, you know, Christ returns to the Father at the right hand. What does he look like up there? You know, the Christ in glory at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is so impressive that something interesting, St. Peter, 
is told by a special revelation. He's told, you're going to die soon. He says, I've been told by the Lord that I'm going to die soon. And so what does he do? It's like any of us, you get older, and if you think that this day is coming, you might say, well, there's some things I want to make to clear up. I want to make sure the kids know what to do, you, certain things you want to do to, to get ready. And so he writes a letter, Second Peter, where he's talking, I'm writing this because the Lord has told me I'm going to die, and I want to get some last words into you. And he talks about his defining moment in his life. And you say, boy, that's got to be a tough one. Because we say, in Peter's life, I mean, this guy's been everywhere. He saw three resurrections. I mean, person, I mean, he saw, I should raise it, right? He saw the daughter of Jairus. He saw the widow of Nain's son. He saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. He walked on water. Remember, Christ called him on the way. He walked on water. He saw it all. He was personally called by Jesus. When you say, what's the defining moment of my life? He was at the Last Supper. You'd say, it probably would have been, oh, the transfiguration. But that's what he refers to. You know, looking back, it's the transfiguration. And he tells us why. He says, he's, in 2 Peter, it says, we don't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So when you have someone like Peter, and he's saying, you know, the last thing I'm going to tell you, the experience I want to go with, is the real credit. I've seen, I haven't just seen the man come back from that. I've seen Christ in his glory. Ne I'll never forget it. That is life-changing. Now, we said, how is this also like the baptism of Jesus at the beginning of this period? Well, actually, what we have is a manifestation. We, God is invisible. No man has seen God. But we can, we say, we can see it's like the sacramental signs. We, you know, God can make himself visible. And so what happens at the baptism, we have our Lord Jesus standing in the waters, right? He's standing in the waters. And the Father's voice, you know, comes out. It makes it very, it's audible. It says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit actually comes down in the form of a dove and actually rests upon him. So it's, a, it's actually a vision of the Trinity. You know, we can, we are, it's a, or it's, it's a manifestation of the Trinity. Well, the same thing happens today if you look at our story in Transfiguration. We have the Lord Jesus on the mountain. We have the Father's voice saying, this is my Son with whom I well pleased. Listen to him. You say, but where's the Holy Spirit? I don't see any dove in sight. Okay. What happens is it says that a cloud overshadowed them. Now, what's that cloud? It says with Mary, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. In the Old Testament, with a, with, a, with a tent of witness, what happens? How do you know God is in the tent that Moses built? Suddenly, we see this cloud enters the tent to show that God is here. When Solomon builds his great temple, it's still just a beautiful building until the Shekinah glory of God enters. We see the cloud enter. This, you know, God is present. So we see the Holy Spirit is the cloud. So it's, uh, we actually see, we see manifest Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why Moses and Elijah only? I mean, they're great, but why Moses and Elijah? Let's talk about why, why not Abraham, the father of all believers? You know, it's his promise, in your offspring will all the world be blessed. 
Wouldn't he be great to talk about fulfillment and think, wouldn't Abraham be, be, this is the one to have up here. And again, there's plenty of room. There's no Abraham. David. How does it get better than that? The great, the quintessential king of Israel. The one to whom the promise was made. The son, one of your sons will reign forever. The Messiah, the anointed one. But David's nowhere to be found. Oh wait, Isaiah, duh. Isaiah, another great promise we have is, remember, he's going to be the suffering servant, the lamb that's led to the slaughter. You know, by his stripes we were healed. Certainly, Isaiah, to see this all fulfilled, nope. Moses and Ezekiel. There are three reasons why this is the case. First, let's talk about Moses. Now, Moses is the supreme lawgiver, right? He is the embodiment. That's what we call the law of Moses. He is the lawgiver. But there's something with Moses we should know is when Moses, again, couldn't actually bring people into the promised land. He couldn't, right, he, 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 couldn't, go, he couldn't cross the Jordan. And he dies on, uh, you know, so Moses dies on this uh, side of the Jordan. Now, one of the revelations that was given was he, God says to the people of Israel, he says, I'm going to raise up for you a prophet like Moses. And we might say, well, that's certainly Joshua, Yeshua in Hebrew. That's Joshua. But you know, it's funny. The Jews said Joshua was great, but Joshua was not Moses. You know, he just isn't that. This is not really like Moses. He did wonderful things, but he was, he was, he. Uh, you know, he certainly wasn't the successor to Moses. So there became a tradition that one of the things God's people were waiting for was the return of, or the coming of the prophet. In John's gospel, we said we talk about the prophet, meaning I will raise a prophet, you know, like Moses. They refer to this multiple times in the book of Acts of the Apostles. Well, that's Jesus, Yeshua. By the way, if you're unaware of it, that's the name Joshua. Yeshua is also, Yeshua is Jesus. One is Greek and one is Hebrew. It's like saying Pedro and Peter. They're the same name in different languages. So think about the beautiful fulfillment here. You know, Moses couldn't get them into the land, but Joshua, Yeshua, could bring them into the land and saying, this is the real thing coming because this is the Yeshua who will really bring them in, into the heavenly, the heavenly land. Also, something else which is beautiful is to show fulfillment here is that Moses never got into the promised land. Well, I don't know about that. Where is he now? Moses, during this revelation, is standing in the promised land. In Jesus, somehow even Moses is now standing in the land. Now, another thing is they remember, what are they talking about? Luke really emphasized that. What are they talking about? And what we, uh, what we have here, what they're talking about is his departure. Now, that's really important because the English doesn't do it justice, because the Greek word for departure is incredible here. It's exodus. So we're saying in Christ, we're seeing the true exodus. The glorious exodus of the people of Israel is as beautiful as this is a foreshadowing of even a greater exodus, where Christ, the Passover lamb, you know, will bring his people and lead them out into, into the land. So he's saying, you know, this is, uh, so this is, they're, they're talking about his coming exodus, that this will be the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the exodus. Now, what about Elijah? It might surprise you, why do we have Elijah? Well, 
First of all, Elijah was the first in the string of the great prophets. And he has, there's more miracles about Elijah. No one can hold, hold, uh, can hold a candle to Elijah on the miracles and things. And he's a hundred years before our earliest writing prophet, you know, the Amos. So he's sort of the quintessential prophet. Okay. But something we have, what happens at the end? If you went to the Holy Land and said, you know, one thing I want to see before I die is I want to see uh, Elijah's tomb. That, talk about being frustrated, that is not, or, uh, actually, knowing the Holy Land, there are probably 20 people who have it. Okay, but, <laughs> but in <laughs> You know, like heads of John the Baptist. Okay, but in any event, actually there is no tomb of Elijah because he goes up to heaven, right? He's like, you know, uh, like Enoch, you know, he, he's taken up into heaven. So why? It's a visible sign that his mission will not be complete. You know, it's like his mission remains to be completed. And we're told with John the Baptist, we're told he comes in the power of Elijah. He's bringing the message of Elijah. But when they ask him, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. So we actually have, not only has John fulfilled the mission, but we actually have Elijah in person now who has come back to earth. Elijah's here at the same thing. Talk about fulfillment. Elijah and Moses' mission, we have a visible sign of their fulfillment. It's all coming together. Something else we should look at these things is, okay, let's, um, right, okay, the, uh, okay, the, uh, did I miss one? Yeah, I think we're, we're good. Okay. Let's say the third reason, though, is why weren't the other people there? Right? That's a really good question. Why not David and Abraham and Isaiah and how many other people, you know, in the Lord? You know, the, the Hebrew Scriptures are all about Yeshua. You know, he's, it's all about him. So the question, why not? Well, there are two things that are unique to just two people in the, New Test in the Old Testament, you know, in the Hebrew Scriptures. We have Mo Moses and Elijah both have a personal vision, manifestation of God. That's unique to them. God specially reveals himself to Moses and to Elijah. So let's look at that manifestation, okay? We have that in Moses, he says, uh, back in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, he says, please show me your glory. And he said, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face and live. He said, you simply cannot see God. He said, I'll come, to finish the passage, he said, I'll come and you can see me from behind. But showing, there's still going to be something lacking in your vision. It's something, I'm going to show you something, but it won't be the full thing. There will be something, you can see me from behind. No man can see my face and live, and see my glory. And he said, I want to see your glory. He said, no one, no one can see my face and live. Elijah has a similar experience. He's uh, now uh, come to the holy mountain, and it says, Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now, here's where we want to listen up. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So he was in a cave. And when God reveals himself, he won't look upon it. He, puts, he covers his face, you know, as God says, imagine the brightness is coming through, but he doesn't look God directly at God. These are the only two people who have theophanies, 
you know, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And they're incomplete. They're subtotaling something. What happens here? Now, I want you to, to look at this. We say in John's Gospel, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So basically, what we're seeing here is he gets to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And part of the sign of that, by the way, is we don't have casual details. What has happened to a Moses and Elijah? They are also covered with glory. Remember when Moses would come down from the mountain, he had to wear a mask because of the glory that had changed him. So we're seeing that in Jesus they see face to face. They're not hiding here. They're not seeing from behind. They're looking at the face of God in his glory. They're looking at Jesus in his glory. Now we could ask, there are 12 apostles, why Peter, James, and John? Well, J Peter, James, and John are going to be a unique situation. They're going to see Jesus at the lowest moment of his life as a human being. The lowest moment. And it's not the crucifixion. There's even a harder moment for Jesus before that. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the reason they give us the name, they'll just call it a garden, is it actually means something. You know, if you know Hebrew or Aramaic, you know what it means. It's an olive press. The only way you can make olive oil, think Messiah, the anointed one, is by squeezing it. You have to, it's, it's a terrible deal for the olive. You know, the only way to make olive oil is you've got to squeeze the oil, the oil out of it. And so what happens here, they see Jesus in the garden, and it's not pretty. He's so frightened, he's sweating blood. You know, he says he's in agony saying, if there's any way, you know, this is, this is not the dramatic moment. So they need something to put that in context. It's like if you go to a movie where it's really going to be horrific. Think of like Saving Private, uh, Private, uh, Private Ryan. Is that the, okay, Saving Private Ryan. Is that in a movie like that where it's really at the point, you say, wow, look at this going, is he going to make it? You say, I know he does because he starts the movie. You know, it allows you to know, you can appreciate it differently. I know he will make it because he's the one telling the story. So in this way, that's what the transfiguration will do. They will always remember it. I've seen his glory. It doesn't look like this. You know, I've seen the reality. I've seen it on the holy mountain. This can get me through. Now, why do we read the Gospel of Transfiguration on the Sunday before we begin Lent? Well, the big message of Lent is this. The road to Easter because Lent is all about preparing for Easter. But the road to Easter always passes through Good Friday. I can't emphasize. The road to Easter always passes through Good Friday. A lot of the story of heresy, if I had to summarize it, would be finding ways to get to Easter, finding bypasses to get around Good Friday. There is no other way. Remember Jesus at a, a moment when he said, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And then Peter, that's right. And Jesus says, you know, I'm going to be handed over, and then I'll rise. And Peter's so upset, he got to be killed. He said, oh, Lord, you're having a bad day. He said, oh, Kevin forbid. And he said, he said, get behind me. He said, you don't get it. You can't separate those two. Being the Messiah means this is the path I follow. You know, and lest we think this is just about Jesus, immediately in all three Gospels that give us this story, they immediately have things that Jesus says, actually calls everybody out, not just the apostles, the whole crowd, meaning us. And he said, if anyone would be my disciple, he has to take up his cross daily, it says in Luke, and follow me. So he said, this isn't a matter of what just Jesus doing this we admire. 
to, be, to get to our own Easter in Jesus, we have to walk with our own cross. We have to carry our cross. There is no, that's what Lent reminds us of. Our, the road to Easter passes through Good Friday. We carry our cross. How can we do that? Well, the beautiful thing about our Lord Jesus is that he was a true human being. He is truly God, but his humanity was the real thing. He really suffered. He really could get scared. All those things were true. So how did he do it? How did Jesus go through all of this? And we have a beautiful answer. The answer we have in the book of Hebrews, it says, looking to Jesus, uh, it, uh, looking to uh, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy, what got him going is he knew this. He knew the end of the story. He knew this wasn't a defeat. This wasn't a horrible, terrible tragedy. This is going somewhere. It's going to be better than ever. The best is still ahead. The best is yet to come. That's how Jesus could cover and carry his cross. The best is yet to come. And that's exactly uh, what we do. That's why we do it the same way. This is the virtue of hope, is keeping our eyes on the prize. So in my favorite verse in all of Scripture, I try to keep this in every sermon, is 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. We keep our eyes on Jesus. That's how we carry the cross. We keep our eyes on Jesus and we can do anything. It's like Peter. When, when Pe Jesus is walking on the water, Peter says, Hey, call me out. I'd love to do that. He said, come on out. And when, Jesus, when he, Peter's looking at Jesus, he walks on water. Now, when he starts looking at things around him, then he sinks. But as long as he looked, he kept his, on Jesus' glory. He was, he was fine. He walked on water. Now, we have that beautiful colic that Father uh, Brett read for us this morning. Let me read it again. Now that we have this, the idea that we, we look at his image, we're trans, that transforms us. When we look at him, we're transformed. Matter of fact, it tells us in John, in John's first epistle, it's what we call the beatific vision, ultimately, in its ultimate form. It means, it's Latin, it means the vision that will make us happy, will make it everything come together for us. We'll see God face to face. In fullness, you know, in our resurrection, we'll see God face to face. So it's saying, this, what's this, this, uh, this vision? So it says, O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Now, I wanted to say some practical things as we, as we approach Lent. One of the things is, again, we emphasize it, that there are theological virtues. And why we call them theological, there are two reasons. They have to do directly with our relationship with God. But something else, they are miracles. We can, other virtues we can develop, we can work at them. We can work at being thriftier or more disciplined. We can work at those things. Pagans work at them. Think of Seneca and things and the great you know, Stoic philosophers. You can work at those, but you can't work at faith. You can't create faith. You can't create hope. You can't create love. They're gifts from God. The good news is everyone has the seed in them. That's, we've received it our baptism. We've received that grace. However, seeds have to be planted. Right? We have to actually nourish them, or they'll just remain seeds sitting in the, in the packet on the counter. We have to actually nourish them. So how can we nourish the power of hope in our life? 
That's a good exercise for lunch. And I think there are three things we can look at that can really help us become men and women of hope. The first thing is this. To remember, hope looks forward, despair looks backwards. You know, one of the things the enemy loves to do when he tempts us is he loves when we think about the past a lot. We're obsessed about our past, the wrongs that were done to us or the bad choices we made. But we're living, and here's why it always leads to despair. We can't change the past. The past is, so it can only lead to despair. There is no hope in the past. Hope is always out front. It's never behind. So we're not looking backwards. We don't live in the past. We look forward to the future, and this is a beautiful thing, because with God, the future is always open. This is beautiful, and the light's always on. Look at one of my favorite heroes is the, the thief on the cross, a career criminal who even at the beginning of his crucifixion was making fun of Jesus, talking about, you know, look, I wrecked my whole life. He basically said, I wrecked my whole life. We've been criminals our whole lives. But even he looks forward. At that moment, he looks forward and he says, well, you know, remember me in your kingdom. Hope He looks forward and the first person to enter the kingdom after Christ. The first one in is the thief on the cross. He only had a few minutes. That's all it takes. As long as there's life, you know, it's all, the best is always yet to come because of God's power. We've never messed up our life so much that God can't do greater things. Our life, the best is yet to come. So the light is always on, and we look, look forward to that. I also love something about the thief we might miss, is about his being first. Remember, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And some medieval theologians would talk, as he talking about like a place they made up called limbo and things like that. No, no. What he's basically saying is this. Paradise, we think of the Garden of Eden, okay? And the Garden of Eden is we were cast out of. Now with the death of the first one to die in faith after the death of Jesus, said, today you'll be in paradise. You'll be the first person back in paradise today. That's why Jesus has this glorious saying, the last will be first. Because we want to give up and say, I've wrecked my life with those holy people who've had great lives. You know, but for me, you know, I haven't lived the life I wish I lived. I'm pretty ashamed, I might say. I've made a lot of bad choices. doesn't make any difference. Jesus says, I'm telling you, the last will be first. You know, our life is clean, nothing but possibilities in it if we look in hope. Because God ignores them. Look at Ezekiel 18. God has no concern for the past. He's concerned only for our present and our future. So there's always hope. Remember that. All we do is right now, it doesn't matter what happened, we turn now and the, the light's on. The Father runs out to greet us. Now, the, third, the second thing I want to say, hope looks up, despair looks sideways. What I mean by that, one of the, th the biggest tools the enemy has is like sometimes a sibling rivalry, is we think somehow mom loves you more, that kind of thing, you know, are you doing something different for him, et cetera. And so instead of no focusing on how much these people love us, we're like balancing everything. You know, we're looking at everything as points of comparison. And we just need to look at God and realize and not worry what he's doing over here. We don't know that. Just leave that alone. And there's a beautiful example in the scriptures of that. One of my heroines, is the Syrophoenician woman. The Syrophoenician, why do we mention where she comes from? A real special reason. Is when God's people entered the promised land, the people who were cast out, the ones, uh, a number of them escaped to the coast and they lived there. They're called Syrophoenicians. They were the descendants of those people cast out of the land. These people should have no special love for God's people, you would think. 
However, when Jesus comes to her, she has a daughter. She comes and says, I have thy daughter. Can you please heal her? And he says, look, it seems cruel, but it's not. We see what happens. Jesus says, you know, it's not right to take the, the, the kid's bread and throw it to the dogs. And he's talking about God's chosen people. They're first. The gospel has to come to them first. But he said, but, but he, she says, you know, that's true. The kid, kids eat first, but there's plenty for everyone. Even the dogs get some. So instead of complaining, look at you have God's chosen. No, no, who cares? There's plenty for everyone. That's what hope looks like. We just look to God and say, I don't have to look at what you're doing with anybody else. All I know is I look at you and everything you do in me is good. It's good enough for me. And that's why he says there's something he's rarely said in the scriptures. Jesus is always saying, you have little faith. When it comes to that woman, he says, woman, great is your faith. Jesus doesn't talk like that. Woman, great is your faith. But she's a woman of hope. She didn't see what wasn't there. She saw what was coming. And finally, the last thing we have here, hope acts, despair reacts. Hope acts, despair, despair reacts. You see, when we have hope, we realize with God being in control of where we're going, we have a freedom of action. There's always something we can do. That's one of the reasons God gave us this credit card. What I mean by that is that's what prayer is. God has given us a power we don't have. He knows what people need, but he said, I'm going to do this so you can act, always be in a position to help others. No matter where you could be dying of cancer, you can't even move. You're in your bed, but I, you can actually do something that will actually help others. No one is deprived of the ability. So when you're a person of hope, you realize the only question for us in every situation is, what can I do? And the answer is always something. What can I do? Instead of saying, somebody needs to do something. This is terrible. We're always in the position, what can I do? There's a wonderful, in the 50s, there was a group, uh, uh, a religious movement called the Christophers. And they had a motto I loved. Better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. You know, so we're always able, you know, we act. We don't react. We're always doing, what can I do? Because I'm light and I'm salt, right? God has put us in the world to change everything. You know, a little bit of salt, a little bit of light changes everything. So let's conclude here is hope changes everything. It's so important. Jesus gives us two parables I love about hope. He said, you know, the kingdom, he says like this, imagine a guy finds a treasure in a field. And again, if you don't know, in ancient world, they didn't have banks. They had bankers, but they didn't have banks. You didn't have a place you could have deposits. So you had to hide. if you're a poor person, you had to hide your savings. Typically, you hit them somewhere like in a field, you bury them. And a lot of times, people die or something happens, they didn't tell anybody. And the Roman law said that whoever owns the land owns what's in it, period. So this under Roman law, he said, wait a second. If I find, just stumble across it, wow, there's a treasure here. If I, it's like buying the winning lottery ticket. I know it's a Wow, who would hesitate? It's easy. It's not hard to say, let's beg, do whatever I have to. Go to, you know, go to the parents. <laughs> go, who, who can give me money? I'm going to take, <laughs> take a loan on the house, whatever, so to speak. It's not a problem because I know where this is going. Or the man with the pearl of great price. This is going to make his career. He knows what he's got. No one else does. He goes for it. Hope does that in our lives. So the season of Lent, is telling us is a time to really become people of hope, to really nourish the seed of hope in each one of us. So let's remember in Lent, as we prefer to Easter, that Christ has already arisen. That's the good news. He's already risen. So let us start walking as people of hope. So as we're even walking in Lent, we know this is going somewhere. We know the ending. Let's live victoriously in the hope of the resurrected Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. 
As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.